Thanks, Bob. Just to clarify, I'm Neil and this is. <laughs> so, yeah, we're here to talk about Eleanor's book, Stop Being Reasonable Six Stories of How We Really Change Our Minds. And there's a, a great story that sort of kicks off the book, Eleanor, when you, you made a segment for the, um, the, the radio show This American Life. Mm. Um, and I want to talk about what happens in that in some detail, but before I do, just give us a brief overview of, of the, what the idea behind the book is that came out of that. Right. Um, so the book is, um, I don't know if it says, oh no, that's, that's other people. Um, uh, the book is six stories about people who change their minds in uh, high stake circumstances and in ways that are kind of surprising as in they didn't change their minds based on like an argument or based on a set of premises or based on reasoning from first principles. They changed their minds based on things that are very intimate and very human. And part of the project of the book is to tell those stories in an intimate kind of reportedly way, to interview them and like sit with them about exactly what happened. Um, and then to kind of, to try to pull from that particular process something about what rationality or reasonableness demands of us more generally and to get to a more capacious and humane account of what it is to be rational. Uh, and the idea kind of that, that came out of the radio program that we're about to talk about and the idea that motivates much of the book is that the, the tempting ideal of rationality that we see so often in public, which has a lot of premises, a lot of arguments, a lot of faith in the idea that if we put two people of opposing views on TV and they go back and forth, that we will get to the truth or to some kind of persuasive um, revelation that that idea is, is not just misleading uh, and not just pragmatically unsound, but that it's actually doing us harm um, and that we would be better off returning to an ideal of rationality that proceeds from how we, in fact, change our minds. That's the, the, the very long, short version. So I, I remember this segment on This American Life going out, and this is it's 2016, so this is also... It's a while ago now. Brilliantly well timed. It's, it's before the whole... Me too thing really kicks yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but basically, what you decide to do is is go out on a on a uh, a Saturday night in in Sydney and confront men who drunk men who catcall you. Yeah. Um, and one would think that you know if this was me and somebody you know I, for instance, gave someone a tap on the ass as these men do in this book. And, um, and was confronted and told that, you know, not only was you know, that the wrong thing to do, but that nobody likes this, yeah. that I would be shocked and I would say, well, I'll never do that again. Right. That's not what happened. No, you'll be astonished to hear. Um, no, so, um, so as you say, the premise of the radio program was that I would walk out in uh, King's Cross, which is Sydney's party district, um, and I would wait to be catcalled, um, and then... I would sort of in a reportedly fashion turn around with my microphone and I would say like, come back, just say that into the microphone. Tell me what you said, tell me why you said it, uh, and tell me like, what were you hoping for? If this had gone as well as possible for you, what would that have looked like? Um, and part of it began genuinely just as like a motivational thing. Like I've always found it very opaque to try to understand why people do this. Um, and I think like, it's like uh, women in the crowd, how old, like, Hands up if you were sub-15 the first time a man did or said something to you on the street that was peculiar, right? 
It's, and and it's, that's mystifying, right? Because if you stay with that thought for long enough, presumably not every one of the men who yelled something strange at a 15-year-old girl actually propositionally deeply was hoping that she would like turn around and give him her number or that she would stay and they'd get a drink. So it's from the first time that I was cackled, it's always seemed very muddy to me motivationally. So it began as like, just come back, like let's have this moment last a little longer than it usually does and let me not do the thing that I'm meant to do on my end of this deal, which is to kind of keep walking and pretend like it didn't happen. Um, let me into how the world seems to you and tell me what you were possibly hoping for. Uh, and they were really bad at doing that. Um, I don't know why I expected that they would be like, oh yeah, here's my limpid access to my internal mental states. Um, but it turns out that they were as, as confused as I was. Um, and they- I think at least they'd be embarrassed about this. I mean, do, would you? Like, if, they've, if they're not embarrassed enough to have stopped doing the thing, then, I don't know, I was, I was surprised at how many of them stopped to have a conversation with me. I kind of thought that a lot of them would, would see a microphone and feel like this is, I'm gonna get in trouble in some way yeah. for this. Um, but every single one who I stopped to speak to, actually barring one, there was a moment where I went over to one and I was like, just come back. Um, and he pushed his mates out of the way and he went, feminist, and they ran away. <laughs> um, um, but other than that, they were just like really excited. They were like, they loved microphones. Yeah. They loved being on air. They felt kind of like it was a celebrity exchange yeah. or something. They gave me like a huge amount of their soul in exchange for just like me talking to them. But what I mean is about thinking they would be embarrassed is I would have presumed that again, it was some sort of, you know, some sort of intimidation. As you said, if you were, if you were doing that to a, a 15-year-old girl or, or younger, you would not presume that this was going to lead to anything, therefore you're just doing it in some sort of domination-type play. But when you interviewed these guys, it seemed they genuinely all did believe yeah. that you were likely to come back and go, oh, hey, thank you, that was a nice compliment, here's my phone number. Yeah, or at minimum, they felt like women liked it. Mm -hmm. um, like, that was the thing that emerged in every single one of these interviews. And there were hundreds. By the time we finished the project, there had been literally hundreds. Um, and in every single one, the response of men was like, no, 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 but, like, you enjoy this too, right? Like, you're having fun. It's a compliment. Um, it's a kind of, it's a piece of, like, street theatre or something that we're all taking part in. Um, and that set the stage for the kind of persuasive challenge that is the first chapter of the book and, and it wound up being the central theme of the radio program. Um, are people aware of This American Life as a radio program? Some, yes, some, no, okay, cool. Um, so it's a radio program that does um, stories on a theme, bring a variety of themes and bring a variety of stories each week. Um, and the theme that week was once more with feeling. And that wound up being the theme because I kept making this case over and over and over and over and over again. And every time I did it, it was like, okay, let me just try it once more. Like this time, this time, once more with feeling, we'll get it done. And the case that I kept making was, you are doing this because you think women enjoy it. Here am I sitting in front of you, a woman telling you with credibility that I don't enjoy it and that nor do the rest of us. Um, and nonetheless, that just didn't work. Yeah, they don't believe you. That they didn't, yeah, exactly. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, and specifically they didn't believe me. Yeah. It wasn't that they didn't believe the content of what I was saying, it was that it mattered that I was saying it. Um, and that wound up being a very kind of soul-destroying project and what ultimately went to air, um, which is still available and is, I think, like, still, like, really moving to me, was a, like, 30-minute conversation with one man 
who I sat alone with in Nagata and got to this really, I mean, I keep saying intimate, but it was intimate, this space where we were being really honest with each other about what it meant to him and what it meant to me and how I felt and how he felt and how the world seemed different to us. And he just would not change his mind. Like, it was a really close kind of almost tender conversation about this mystifying thing. And in the end, he just wouldn't change his mind. Um, so... Let's talk about just the idea of being reasonable, right? Which is the, you know, looks like is the title of this book, but it isn't because somebody has scribbled over it. <laughs> so you mentioned in the, in the introduction that, you know, for instance, in the news coverage over the Grenfell fire, Michael Gove went on the mm-hmm. television and said, you know, obviously we're going to do something about this, but we need to think about this sort of, you know, dispassionately. Yeah. Um, and thinking about things in a rational way, which a lot of the people in this room will think is, you know, an axiom that, that one should follow, seems, you know, for what is a better word, quite a reasonable thing to do. Yeah, right. Um, so let's talk about why you started to think that this wasn't necessarily the case. Right, so I should be clear, the title, um, the title can be misleading. Um, stop making sense was taken, so we won't stop being reasonable. Um, <laughs> The thought is not actually that we should cease what we take rational thinking to be. The thought is rather that we need to get back to a more capacious account of what it means to be rational. Um, So so the idea of reasonableness that I'm trying to reject here is the idea that is anemic and denuded of the personal and the humane and the private and the high stakes. That's the idea that I'm trying to reject. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That you can in some way be a completely rational spotlight being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, so so when I say stop being reasonable, the idea of reasonable that I'm using there is the one that is in public and the one that slaps us on the wrist for being emotional or for being angry or for thinking with our hearts or for thinking with an eye to who we trust or what we think about ourselves or what we hope for the world. I think there's an ideal of rationality, certainly there was for me, that is based on, you know, debate. It's very based on this kind of enlightenment ideal, exchange of ideas, televised two people, opposite sides, rigorous clash of words, while our truth appears. That kind of model, I think, is, is one that we have a lot of faith in and and the idea throughout the book, and, and specifically in response to that, um, that comment by Michael Gove, is that that ideal may turn out to be built on sand. It's not clear to me why we put so much stock in that ideal when, to my mind at least, looking around, it doesn't seem to have done as much good. And it also doesn't, if you come from a philosophical background, as I do, it's not clear that it's in fact based on sound philosophy either. A lot of the kind of tenets that in order to be rational, you have to divest yourself of emotion or that in order to be rational, you have to divest yourself of yourself. Those things are not settled orthodoxy in philosophy. So it's not clear to me why they should be settled orthodoxy in the public domain either. Can we just take a step back and tell us something about your, your life in the debate world? Oh, I thought you did. Just life in general. <laughs> I enjoy my dog. She's good. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I started debating when I was um, in year five, which means I was ten, um, and did it basically from then until the end of my bachelor's degree. And 
I got really good at it, as did the people who were doing it with me. Um, we did it. There was a point in my life where I was training 23 hours a week as a debater, um, <laughs> which is, I, I worked it out that I had got 10,000 hours of this skill before I left school. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a really, it's a totally bizarre skill. Which is another just now discredited. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Doesn't work, doesn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I had, I had spent so long debating and we went to state championships, we went to national championships, we went to world championships. And I'm allowed to say all this and it doesn't count as bragging because I now think it's dumb. Um, so we did a vast amount of just like argument analysis. You just spend hours and hours and hours being thrown into a room with three other people and a topic that is arbitrary, arbitrarily selected coming up with a whole host of arguments. And then I parlayed that into academic philosophy, where for at least the first little while that you do philosophy, the same kind of tradition is there. Like it's just this endless war of premises and this endless kind of um, architecture of argument where you build things up on stable foundations. And that had given me a great deal of my sense of self, the idea both that I was good at persuasion and that this was how persuasion ought to work, um, such that when I finally did this experiment for This American Life where I went out and I spoke to these catcallers. What I lost in that exchange when I couldn't persuade anyone was not just, it was kind of annoying because it would have been great to have the radio where I changed someone's mind. Um, what I lost was also in some really deep way like my own personal faith in that model of persuasion where really if you and I sit together and just go through the argument premise by premise, we can actually achieve change. Now, I don't think that we can't. I don't think it's impossible. Mm -hmm. But I, I did lose a lot of the faith that I had in that. And that was, as you say, uh, largely because of my own background as a stupid nerd. <laughs> but also that is, it's a sport. Right? Yeah, exactly. As, as a game, the idea that that has somehow become the way that, you know, legislation should be made. Or yeah, yeah. About. Like everybody in the, in, in the room is, is sort of, you know, familiar with the television programme Question Time, which you talk about in the book, you talk about, in, I think, an Australian version of the, of the same yeah, yeah. which I hadn't heard of. But, you know, and, and the classic case where they, you know, they invited Nick Griffin, then of the, of the British National Party on, and the idea was that he would come on and, and his Aries reprehensible views, and, and that would be the end of them. Yeah. And then in some, the problem with that is, in some ways, that did work in that particular case, because that right. man happened to be, you know, terrible speaker but then obviously <laughs> at the same time yeah. they were promoting Nigel Farage yeah. as the you know the, the personality that became and we all know where that led yeah yeah um I want to go into the stories then in the book there's there's six stories including the one from this American life that tell this tell the story of of I guess just people who discover something that they didn't know that was true to begin with and yeah. have an experience that changes their life in some way. Um, and the first one of those is about a guy called Dylan and a Colts and his yeah. new partner, Missy's attempts to basically not change his mind, but I guess just facilitate him changing his mind himself. Yeah. So, so I should... I, we should start with a kind of methodological note, which was that what I wanted this book to be, and what I hope it is, I think it is, was kind of the reverse of what had happened to me when I was doing the This American Life story. So I wanted it to be 
real stories about cases where persuasion had gone well and where, against all the odds, people had managed to see the truth and they had managed to get closer to some kind of, I mean, personal enlightenment in the least, like, hokey-pokey use of that phrase, right, where they had seen the light. Because um, I, I didn't want the book to be pessimistic. I wanted it to be about how we bring ourselves and each other back to the truth and how we can use those sorts of tools for progress. So I wanted to find stories where you didn't get the kind of roadblock that I, ex I experienced with those catcallers. And instead what happened was that people, against all the odds, they were able to see the truth. And I wanted each one of the chapters to kind of reveal something philosophical about the ways that we can do that that are more interesting and nuanced and human than the standard televised debate model. And I wanted to find room to say that those kinds of strategies are not only like pragmatically useful, they're not only things that we can leverage just to get results, but that we might feel a bit icky about doing, but that in fact they might be both pragmatically useful and in fact rationally well justified, that there might, there might very well be like philosophically speaking good grounds on which to think that persuading people by leveraging credibility is just as rational as persuading them by using evidence. So that's kind of the, the methodology was I, I started out by being like, look, each, each chapter in this book should show us something new about what it is to be rational. And in Dylan's case, kind of what I wanted the, the takeaway message to be was about how significant trust is and how rational trust can be and how rational it can be to use trust and to leverage trust as a way of getting people to see the truth. Um, so it's kind of, okay, so it's necessary to understand a little bit about Dylan. Dylan was born into a religious sect um, that, <laughs> that now that we're not in Australia where the defamation laws are really strict, we can call a cult. Um, so he was born into a cult. He was raised in it for 26 years. Um, he wasn't allowed to see people who weren't members. Um, that kind of got a little more lax as he got older, but basically everyone he knew shared exactly the same set of beliefs as him. And the structure of the organization was such that if he'd spent that much time with people who didn't think that, he would be punished, and so would the people who spoke to him. So it's this very, like... Um, sealed epistemic environment. There's not a lot of room for dissent or different opinions to get in, which means that it's all the more remarkable that Dylan did in fact manage to change his mind, which he did, and he now rejects all of the things that the, uh, that the cult believed, which is a laundry list of completely bizarre things. So they were apocalypse heralding, they were no sex, drugs, marriage, <laughs> no marriage, that's false, they like marriage, no sex, drugs or alcohol before, um, marriage or after, in the case of drugs and alcohol, um, they were very opposed to individual interpretations of scripture. Mm -hmm. So they have this very hierarchical authoritarian structure where the only way that I can get the truth is by deferring to you if you're my elder and so on. So there's a kind of built-in necrosis in the system where every single individual believer is discouraged from believing that they can be a source of truth. Yeah. The only way for them to access the truth is to defer to the people higher than them in the hierarchical you know, organization, which is a, a whole set of red flags. So that's the structure that Dylan was in. And then he meets this woman named Missy. And Missy, <laughs> Missy and Dylan are a real challenge to interview. Like I've done a lot of interviews in my time. I was a radio reporter for many years before I wrote this. Um, and they are, the most annoying people to interview because they're so fused as a couple. They're so irritatingly in love that they just like fundamentally see 
sentences as a collaborative exercise. Like they won't, they won't butt out of each other's words. It's really hard to write. Like you can't do the dialogue with all these endless M dashes. Um, but so he meets Missy, and it's kind of love at first sight kind of thing. She's not a member of the sect yeah. cult. And she actually has her own personal experiences with the cult, and she has very good reason to be exceptionally suspicious of it and to really not want to be with a man who is a member of it. Nonetheless, she has this sort of tremendous optimism and love and thinks that she can see through to the man that Dylan will be once he's no longer in the cult, and that's a man that she wants to be with. So she privately concocts a plan to change his mind about the cult. She makes a five-year plan. And in that five-year span, they get married, they have kids, she moves into the closed environment that he lives with these other believers. And the whole time, Missy pretends that she believes what he believes. Or at minimum that she's open to it. Yeah, she pretends she's going to join. Exactly. That she's kind of like on the road yeah. to conversion and like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Um, and like, hey, I'll get baptized like tomorrow though. Um, so she's doing this and, and she's going to worship meetings with him and she's saying all this stuff to him about how like she kind of, maybe they should go and be missionaries for the cult elsewhere. Um, and now they both know that all along she was kind of trying to like plant seeds of doubt in his mind. Like she would say things like, why do you think it is that our kids aren't allowed to play with the children of non-believers? Like, doesn't that seem like kind of a cultish thing to do? And he'd just be like, no, no, like, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Um, and seven years into the five-year plan, <laughs> um, there is a moment where, in fact, he does change his mind, and he changes his mind very rapidly. It's like a quick cascade. It's like a big event happens. And then three days later, he's left the cult and he never comes back. And the reason, I'm going to withhold exactly what that event is. You can read it in the book that is for sale in the foyer. Um, but the, the reason that that happens is that he's put in a position because of this event where he's told that he has to choose between his wife and salvation. And he thinks that anyone who could tell him that it's a choice between this woman that he loves so much and eternal goodness, hope, salvation you know, deliverance from evil. Anyone who could see those things as mutually incompatible must not be trustworthy. Like anyone who can tell him that he has to give up his wife can't be a very good judge of character. And so that then puts him in a position where having forfeited credibility about whether his wife is a good person, the elders of the sect then look very different to him. And it's not that he has had any evidence that what they've said about the apocalypse or anything is wrong. It's just that now he thinks that they don't have that much credibility. And, it's, you know, there's a line in the book that I think gets it right, which is that, like, dominoes don't mind which direction they topple in. So he loses faith in, in them about their judge of character, but then from that comes a whole kind of cascading loss of faith about their judgment about morality or about the judgment about what happens after we die or about the judgment about what we should do in the time before we die. And all of that is the kind of beginning of this unraveling that ends with him being a, a staunch atheist and someone who dedicates a lot of his life to, to trying to get people out of that cult. And what's interesting to me, as a, both as a reporter and as a philosopher, is that that's someone changing their mind in, in a way that is both deeply personal and so much wrapped up in love and who he trusts 
and also, I think, deeply rational. Like, it's not the result of an argument, it's not the result of any premises, and nonetheless, I think it's a perfectly rational change of mind to alter the way that you apportion credibility and then to rearrange your beliefs based on that credibility. Also, a decision with lots of consequences that one might not choose to do if you thought too much, too rationally yeah, yeah, because his yeah. parents, at, at the time of the book, at the time of him leaving, his parents are no longer speaking to him, for instance. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they, um, they, they won't, he tries to sort of talk them out of it, but he, they won't, you know, it's a funny thing, like in, in, in philosophy and in life, I think, like so much of the work is done by what you admit into the arena of debate mm-hmm. and what's allowed into the Colosseum to start with and what counts as evidence to start with. And they won't let him, when they have arguments, they won't let him talk about anything that isn't from scripture. So the only tool that he has available to debunk scripture is scripture itself. Well, I mean, he does what he can with that. You know, he tries to point to internal consistencies, but it would be a lot better if he could point to like the massive debts racked up by the saint or like the investigation into child sex crimes that was done in Australia um, against them. And yeah, so it's a very, as you say, if he had, if he had, thought and weighed up the consequences of changing his mind he very well might have like balked at the jump because it was such a a big a huge loss for him and i mean that's that's the other thing in all the mind changes in this book makes you realize that when people change their minds about things that matter to them that on that kind of scale they're losing part of themselves as well so dylan was really lucky in that his wife also didn't believe what the cult believed, but many, many people in his position have to walk away from their spouse because their spouse still believes. And the children then are in this terrible kind of purgatory, um, no pun intended, um, where they, they get stuck between people who, who are seeing the truth and, and people who aren't. And even with his wife by his side, Dylan lost everyone he'd ever known, every life he'd ever imagined for himself, every moral dictate he'd ever taken for granted. Even just like, what he did on the weekend, you know, he had this moment where it's like at the end of the Truman Show where he just like pushes the door open and it's like, it could be, he doesn't know what's out there, which is all very well because we do, because we live out here. But you think about, I mean, if you discovered right now that this was a sect and there was a door over there and it was like, leave, but you don't know what's out there, you can imagine how it just like changes your core temperature to even think about taking that step. You also, you mentioned the idea of trust and and, and that's a, a theme that's relevant to a number of the stories. Um, thinking particularly of Susie and John's, which we'll, we'll talk about yeah. in a while. But you know, obviously, there was this point where you know Dylan had to put his trust in this relationship yeah. with Missy that you know he was going to give up everything that he he'd known all his life to go. But also, I, I was struck by the idea that you know she obviously had to you know, this idea that she thought. In five years, to buy in five years' time, I can change this man's yeah. mind. Yeah, is also really profane. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's it's kind of it's kind of funny because it's like it's a story about escaping faith and it's faith that got them out. It's an it's a weird little like photo negative, because um, there's one way to read the story, which is like as the rejection of faith. Uh, and I think that's totally wrong. It's, it's a rejection of a particular kind of faith and a particular necrosis of faith, where it's uh, where it's a leap of faith that is. Like that erodes your own ability to trust yourself as well. Um, that was the kind of bad case. And then the good case was exactly, as you say, the extent to which they had faith in each other. Um, and like that is wrapped up in all kinds of epistemic things about credibility and about who you believe and why. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, 
we were thinking about doing a, another radio story about this for This American Life, and it didn't work out because of timing and, and so on. But I remember just sitting in a, in a pitch meeting, and we were talking about how we'd package it, and Ira said, like, do you think it's a love story? And I was like, yeah, I think, I think as much as it's a mind-changing story, it's also at its heart a story about someone's ability to see the better version of their partner, which is so rare and so helpful in getting someone to have the momentum to have a change of mind like that. I want to talk about the story of Alex. Now, yeah, yes. Yeah. I'd say of the... Most of the stories in this book are, you know, about, you know, real serious. Yeah, real, yeah, yeah. Real yeah. <laughs> and the story of Alex is perhaps the least consequential of all of them, but in some ways it was my favourite. It's my favourite too, yeah, um, I really like it. So, well, I'm, I'm just going to let you tell us who Alex was and what happened to him. Um... Do you know what? Let me just... Let me, I know I said I wasn't going to read bits, but I might have told a lie. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Alex, Alex will be familiar to all of you uh, in that he is an archetype. Like, he's just a living, he's just a living stereotype. Um, so he, <laughs> he's, he's an elbow-patched, you know, eldest son of the eldest son. He lives out in Rolling Hills. He went to Oxford and Cambridge and Eton and all the other places. Um, and he was, <laughs> he was, it's kind of, it's difficult to overstate how much this is true. So let me read this to you. He was 20 years old and as Oxbridge as it's possible to imagine. If you took Bertrand Russell, bound him in leather and made him smoke a cigar made entirely of armchairs, you'd still be several punt rides short of Alex. We meet him on the TV show, which I'll tell you about in a second. We meet him on the TV show for the first time at his family's country home, where he shows us around the grounds and introduces us to Roger, who is a horse. So that's Alex. At least it's Alex at the start of the program. Um, and what happens is, do people in the room remember a TV show called Faking It? Hands up, yes. Hands up, no. Heard about it. Yeah. Heard about it? Okay. So Faking It is like I. Okay, Faking It is the the perfect reality TV show. It's it, like as the form goes, it's just like I have to go to like Cordon Bleu so I can perfect my chef kiss. It's like. It's so good as a as a microcosm of psychology and like salaciousness and narrative. It's just the perfect reality TV show. And the way it worked was, it's kind of modern day Pygmalion. So you take someone who has an archetypical identity like Alex, you give them six weeks, I think it was, of intensive training, and then at the end of the program, they have to pass as an expert at some particular skill that they've learned in that six weeks in front of a panel of experts who've been assembled to spot the imposter. So they did a whole bunch of these. So uh, they took like a house painter and they made him train to be a conceptual artist. They took um, a woman who like served drinks on a ferry and made her into a professional yacht. I don't think, what is it, a yachts woman? Something, she made her like an athlete, like that's it. Um, made her like an actual athlete. Um, they took a skinhead and they made him conduct the London Symphonic. You know, they, they're just these amazing inversions of archetypical identity. And Alex, um, who, who it's worth saying is not much bigger than me at this point, uh, Alex was trained to be a bouncer <laughs> in the middle of the 2000 European Football Championships. And line in the book is that like at the time his body kept a respectful distance from the image of athleticism um, he's like very skinny and he's got an accent that betrays him and says that like this man is not a bouncer 
and he has such a short period of time to become someone who is genuinely so threatening to like drunk big football fans that they will turn around and say like never mind mate sorry and they'll go home which is a baffling thing and you when you watch the tv show it's terrifying and the mentors who've been assigned to him, they watch him kind of arrive at their like flats in Hackney and they're like leaning over the balcony watching him pull up out of the taxi when he spent the whole taxi ride being like, oh wow, there's a mattress on the pavement. Like he's <laughs> awful. Um, so, so he pulls up at the apartments and his mentors are like, their face, like it just drops. They're like, this is, the task they have in front of them is astonishingly huge. Anyway, so what happens to Alex is, he goes through this experience, he does the training, he gets like he gets speech coaching, so he starts to have an East End accent, he does like physical comportment training, he does martial arts training, he gets hit in the face a lot, um, he shaves his head. And what's really remarkable about him is that there were a couple of episodes of Faking It where the person kind of couldn't quite commit, like they were so stuck in their old identity that they couldn't quite get out of the awkward first, like, oh, this is so unlike me bit. Um, and it's really kind of important to the premise of the show that you ultimately do let that go and you full-bloodedly be in the identity that's been assigned to you. And Alex does. He really seriously commits. Um, and then, again, something happens on the night of the test, which I'll leave out because it's in the book. Um, and then afterwards, what happens for Alex is as he's sitting on the train kind of on the way home back to Roger and the Rolling Hills... Um, he realizes that he doesn't know anymore whether he's been faking the bouncer identity or the old identity. And he finds himself in this bizarre position of, of having to change his mind about who he really is. Which is, first of all, a position that I think very many of us kind of almost like want to find ourselves in. It's a kind of mind change that sounds very tempting to have suddenly the total freedom to go like, wait, actually like, who am I though? And to think that you could just become a totally different person. That's a very freeing prospect. But it's also a philosophically really vexed one because the only tool available to Alex with which to make that mind change is the very thing that stands to be imperiled by the change of mind, right? So like he, Alex, is trying to reason his way into what is true about him, Alex. And it's a very strange kind of hall of mirrors where evidence and reasoning don't work as they usually do because the thing through which you're processing them is the thing that you're trying to think about. And that's Alex. It's the idea of that concept of, of me, you know, you talk about this in the book, which is that like, you know, I'm you know, 48 years old, but the me that is 48 feels exactly the same yeah. as the me that was 18 years old. Whereas obviously I know sensibly that I've changed in lots of ways and, and, and you know, I'm a, I'm a different person in, in lots of ways. But nonetheless, there is definitely a continuum mm. between those two people. Do you feel like you have a strong sense of, of like a self or a narrator, like a, like a presence inside you that is like a me feeling? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. See, some people don't. This is what's interesting. Some people, some people feel a kind of rattling where they should feel a sense of self. Mm-hmm. And I think both sides of this get a lot out of stories like Alex's because they force you to ask, what is the thing that you're feeling when you feel a self? Or what's the thing that you want to feel when you feel like you haven't got one? And this is obviously an area that ethics is very interested in. Um, but it's also an area that I think people are just very interested in. And the thing that I, I wind up discussing in the chapter is that what I think was so useful for Alex was that 
he was telling a certain story about what kind of person he was. And I think to a certain extent, all of us do this. And there's a theory of selfhood, which says that this is just what it is to have a self, which is to narrate yourself into existence, to kind of be a protagonist in a story, to be endlessly thinking about what kind of story my life is, and to be fitting actions and events in around that plot almost, to get a kind of narrative arc or a, a coherent story. And again, in a nice piece of photonegative-ing, it's actually ultimately being thrust into a different story, namely the reality TV show story, the story in which he's a bouncer, that makes him give up on that, on that previous story. And I think it's, a, it's an opportunity for a meditation about how much the stories we tell ourselves about who we really are, you know, how much they can lead us astray as much as they can be a foundation for your sense of self. And when you interviewed him for the book, yeah. and this is obviously you know, nearly 20 years after the event yeah. of, of that story, so what's his sort of perspective on it now? So he thinks it's the best thing he ever did. Um, he, I had kind of heard Rump, this is why I wanted to talk to him. So you know, I say that methodologically I started every chapter with like, this is the kind of mind change I want, this is the kind of point I want, who is a story that will match that. And I knew like I want someone who changed their mind completely about who they are, and I want someone who can give me a way into thinking about how that kind of mind change has a very different relationship to argument and evidence than the usual kind. And I'd heard sort of like rumblings on like in the production world that um, many of these contestants actually, but Alex in particular, had left the show and it had completely changed his life. So I, I like tracked him down. Um, he turned out to not be living far from me in Australia where he moved immediately after the program. And I sort of was on the phone for about 20 seconds and I was like, so, you know, I was just like, uh, like, how was it for you after the program? He was like, complete 180, totally changed my mind about who I am, completely altered everything, like never looked back. Um, he packed a backpack five days after he got home from the program and just like booked a one-way ticket to Australia and didn't know what he was going to do or what was going to happen and just like made his life up from there. And now he thinks it's, now he is really glad because now he feels like there's a kind of alternate um, storyline where he never goes on the program and he just goes on salmon fishing holidays and he has the whole, the whole life, the whole good, perfect, well-fitting story that was working for him. And he looks at that alternate Alex and feels like that's not actually who he wanted to be. So he, he, I mean, he thinks that even though, again, it was a story of like rupture and of loss in some sense, it was also a story of like tremendous gain and, and discovery. Just looking at the clock, let's do, yeah. do one more. <laughs> then I wanted to talk about Susie and John. Oh yeah, a, a, do you? A, a, it's really sad. Another story okay. that is yeah, cool, let's do Susie. Because okay. we've talked about the fun one. Um, it's another story that's centred in the idea of trust. Yeah. Well, finding yeah. out something about somebody that completely changes yeah. your opinion of them. Tell us what happened. Um, okay. Um, so I'll tell you what happened in a kind of broad strokes way. So Susie and John, not their real names, um, were... Married for many, many years. They met in graduate school. Again, another stupid like love at first sight story, which is so annoying because you just like hear these endless stories of happiness and you're like, I'm sure it was great for you. Um, <laughs> so they were really properly in love. Um, and then oh, just, just after the birth of their first child, um, Susie discovered that John had been keeping a, a shocking criminal secret from her. And it was a secret that... Um, 
that made her fear both for herself and for her young child. It was a secret that made her think that she wasn't safe and that literally everything that she knew about this man was false. In the way that kind of discover discoveries about the people you love can make you think like you just don't know anything about this person at all. This was that, but like on the Richter scale, it like blew out the measurements. Um, so, but she, I say it was a criminal secret. She, unlike a vast, vast number of women in her position, the day that she discovered this went like completely reasonable and realized that like she had to go to the police, she had to go to the authorities, she had to get out, she had to move. And the thing that I wanted to get to with this particular story was like, why, like, why is that true for her? Like, why was she able to so quickly see the truth and act on it when for so many people in her position, the revelation of this horrifying thing, just like all revelations about horrifying things, can occasion denial. So there are loads of people in her position who discover what she discovered and who can't see it for a very long time and who do all kinds of cognitive and mental gymnastics to avoid seeing the conclusions of the evidence in front of them. Um, and, you know, the line in the book is that, is that because, it's, because discoveries like this imperil yourself, that denial makes a kind of sense, as in if the self is imperiled by reason, you just divest the self of reason, and then that's at least one way of keeping yourself intact. Um, so what I wanted the chapter to be about was a kind of an exploration of why it was that she could see the truth and act on it and how it is that shame and the shame of discovering that we've been wrong, like how it is that that can in fact keep us away from the truth. And there's a kind of endless injunction in philosophy and in life that if you are a proper rational person, that means that you're really skeptical. You know, and, and people like me, like kind of, and, and like I think many of us, wear sort of the badge of being a skeptic um, with pride. But what that actually means in real interpersonal terms is like questioning everything that everyone tells you all the time. And I think when you find yourself in the position of having to discover something about someone you've loved, you can feel stupid for not having questioned them more because it can feel like a kind of inherited rule about rationality that if you were smart, you would have questioned all the time and then you just like run it backwards and then it, it's just like, well, because you didn't question everything, then you're not, yeah. you're not intelligent. And that I think is really dangerous and the chapter is about how we can stop shame from blocking our ability to realize when we've been wrong. So let's imagine what a, a person, if I decided to embark on, you know, a, a, go on a you know, dating website and meet somebody, and I decided to set out with a philosophy of being entirely rational about it, right? I'm mm. going to question everything. Right. Every single little thing. How am I going to get on? Very badly, right? So this is, this is the thing, is that, like, the dictates of scepticism... Which is, you know, as we know, like a very ancient philosophical tradition, the, the dictates of you can know nothing about anyone, it necessarily blocks you off from being able to have the kind of trust and intimacy that is so foundational to friendship and love. Mm -hmm. And like I have a friend who works on, um, on fiction and on our relationships to fiction, and he, he points out that it's kind of strange for us to talk about the willing suspension of disbelief when like nothing is less willing. Like no one opens a book and is like, now, shut off the disbelief. You know, it's a thing that happens automatically when you're feeling relaxed and close to something and, and in this kind of like special human space that you're in with fiction and that you're ideally in with the people that you love and the people that you trust. And I think if you, as long as we think that, as long as we equate being rational with endlessly asking questions, we shut off room for 
the suspension of questions that is a necessary part of human trusting loving life. The other thing that happens in, in this story that, that you talk about is, despite the fact that the person here known as Susie does that unusual thing, is that they realise something's wrong and they immediately take steps to, to deal with it and do the right thing. Mm. Still, suspicion is heaped upon her. Yes. You yes, must you must have known, you must have been in on it, you must have looked away from something, yeah. And I think, you know, as with all the stories in the book, what I'm trying to do as well as saying, like, look, here, here is a case of, of a slightly more humane way of being rational. Paired with that is the myths that we have about what it is to be rational. And so, so for, for each case of someone finding the truth in a kind of intimate way, there's also a background myth that tells them that that way of thinking is actually irrational. And I think that those myths are false. That's why I call them myths. And one of the operative myths in this chapter is that if you didn't ask questions, if you didn't ask enough questions, that you necessarily did something wrong. I mean, plainly there are cases where you did do something wrong. Plainly there are cases where an attitude of skepticism is required. Um, but I think one of the myths that was so harmful to her and to people in her position is that is that trusting someone is a form of complicity. And it, it often is, but not always, you know? Just one more question to finish off there. Let's do the sort of like finishing off yeah. glib, final, <laughs> you know, after having written this book, um, what lessons do you think we can take that would, you know, enable us to conduct public discourse in a more, you know, in still a rational way, but, you know. Do you know what? Let me. Because I, th I thought about this when I was writing the damn thing. <laughs> Let me look. Okay. Ha -ha. So this, I'm going to read to you um, from the last, the last story in the book, which is about a man who discovered that his family is not his real family. Um, actually, and since then, I just went to see him like two weeks ago, and he's now, against all the odds, found his real family, um, who are alive and, and, and he didn't think they were. So that's a happy ending for that particular story that you keep in mind as you read it. So I call him Peter. That's also not his real name. Towards the end of our conversation, Peter said, laughing, this feels like therapy. In truth, I'd felt that way about a lot of the interviews I'd done for this book. There'd been stories of such massive upheavals, moments where the bedrock and everything on top of it started to shake. I think I was lucky, Peter said. My sense of self must have been fairly strong. It had felt intimate to hear these stories at these moments, to hear the ways that people pressed forward out of chaos without answers to the questions about what to believe and why. I was struck by how often muddy, ordinary things, like who they trusted or what they valued, had helped them find truth and live through its consequences. It had felt personal to hear these things, like being invited into the secret belfry of someone's mind to peer around at all the ropes. And it made me all the more bitterly disappointed to keep turning on the TV and finding a climate of public argumentation that treats changing minds as combat, or worse, entertainment, by trading on the lucrative fiction that being reasonable is just being really good at arguing. It's a comforting idea, surrounded as we are by so much endemic unreasonableness. But as an account of rationality, it's both philosophically impoverished and utterly inapplicable to the fragile, intimate moments when we need it most. I look at our public debates now and I see an abdication of our intellectual duty to the nuances of rationality, but more importantly, an abdication of our duties to each other. I do not know the answers to many of the questions I've asked in this book. Instead, I think each story, just like one of Peter's model sets, he's a set builder, is a miniature of a much larger complex sprawl, a reminder that rationality itself may turn out to be as tangled, as knotty, and as rooted in reality as the minds it hopes to change. So to answer your question, um, 
I don't know the answers to how to fix the public climate of discourse. What I do know is that many of the myths that we're currently trading on are false and are useless and philosophically ungrounded. And I think it's worth paying attention to the fact that the kind of people who get told off for being irrational are the kind of people who most traditionally are excluded from that space to start with. You know, I mean, there are shorthand ways of saying, like, you're too emotional, you're too undereducated, like, your accent betrays that you don't belong in this space, or, like, the way that you're speaking is not one that we associate with good argumentation. And those, I think, are just like cheat codes to block people who have the kinds of things that need to be being said in the public sphere right now. And the kind of inherited picture of rationality that we spend so much time trading on has a lot that needs to be saved and a lot that can save us. But it also needs to be done alongside the reality of who we are. And that means people with stories and power dynamics that we need to take into account as well. Well, on that point, we're going to have a quick break. I say a quick break, take about 15 minutes, go to the bathroom, have a cup of tea, which is outside. If you'd come back around 10 past four, and then we're going to have some questions with Eleanor, if you can think of something while you're on your break. But before you go, if you just put your hands together for Eleanor Gordon's face.